Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today, Rasul Berry. Uh, Rasul is the teaching pastor at the Bridge Church in Brooklyn and a team member with Embark, a nonprofit focused on millennials. He graduated from University of Pennsylvania with a degree in Africana Studies and Sociology. He is published in Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, The Gospel Coalition, Faithful Magazine, The Witness, and several other spaces. Um, and Rasul is just... I. I as you'll hear, he's amazing. I love talking to Rasul. He's honest, he's humble, he's wise, he's gracious, and he is, um, uh, he's become my kind of one of my go to people when I'm trying to get my arms around the race conversation, which is where we go today. So please welcome back to the show for the second time, the one and only Rasul Berry. All right, hey friends, I'm back with I am back here with uh, Rasul Berry. Um, as some of you know, Rasul was on the podcast a few months ago in a dialogue about race with Samuel Say, um, and uh, that was an interesting dialogue. You know, I mean, it um, we kind of got stuck on some things, and it's one of those two hour conversations that needed another ten hours. But um, ever since then, man, I, I'm like, man, I want to have Rasul back on uh, just by yourself. So this is long overdue. This this should have been done last year, but. Anyway, thanks so much for coming back on Theology Raw. I'm super excited about this conversation. Preston, thanks again for having me. Uh, I'd love to be back and love to continue the dialogue we started. Cool, yeah. And uh, so we have some mutual friends, uh, Ed Uzinski. And um, yes, there's another guy. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Three or four people that know you personally. I'm trying to think of, I think he's a missionary. And you stayed at his house a long time ago. Mm. Is that well, you know, I toured uh with very with bands for like seven years and I stayed in missionaries' houses okay. <laughs> a lot. Like because I was a missionary, I was serving with crew right. uh in the impact movement. So that's how Ed and I know each other okay. being on staff. So unfortunately for a lot of people, staying at a missionary's house would be a simple enough like way of narrowing down who they're talking about. Yeah. That that would help. In my case, you've narrowed it down to about maybe a hundred people. So, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I do know it. I won't say his name just because I don't like saying names unless somebody gives gives me permission. But I, sure, I sure. yeah, I have the name in mind. Okay, so oh. I here's what I want to do. I, I I love how you approach the race conversation because you do so with such grace, thoughtfulness, and you're a pastor. I mean, you are never just wrestling with kind of abstract stuff. You know, your your heart is for the church. Um, I, from what I have seen you both online and our conversations, I mean, you have such a breadth of knowledge, both of kind of the more political national conversation, but also more the theological conversation. And if I, and this is going to be an uncut, unfiltered conversation. Okay. So I'll say it like this. I, I feel like you do a, a very good job communicating to white Christians in a way that's, um, going to speak to them move the needle, um, and yet not be so, um, oh, how, how do I say it? Over, overly challenging. Say, you, you know, where you push somebody too far, too quickly to yeah. where they're like, ah, yeah. I'm, 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 uh, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like you really understand white evangelicalism. So anyway, um, I want you for the next 50 minutes to pastor our audience through this incredibly important conversation. Um, yeah. I almost just want to say go, but let me, let me set it up like this. Like the last 
I mean, couple of years especially has really brought to the surface this conversation in a way that um, has been done before. I'm in the wake of, you know, Rodney King, obviously civil rights movement and everything. I feel like there's moments in, in, in the last few generations where this has happened, but this one seems pretty intense. Um, and it's in many ways dividing the church and how people even go about this conversation. I just looked at my Facebook page and I was being accused of being a CRT advocate and woke, I don't, whatever any of that means. But um, anyway, um, help us to think through this. How, how can we as yeah. a church wrestle with this race conversation in a way that models Jesus? Yeah, no, thanks. And I appreciate the kind words. And and I think um, whenever we as believers engage in an issue or try to think through an issue, we, you know, it's important for our worldview to be framed in the story of God. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, I believe what Ecclesiastes is true, that there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so I think one of the just important points of reference for me is always to try to understand the human experience through the context of the experience that God has revealed in scripture, that God has revealed about all of humanity. Now, that's not to say that there are sometimes some steps you have to take to get there, right? Like there isn't a specific chapter and verse that I can pull up to say, how frequently should I use my cell phone? And, you know, how do I know to, you know, what should I do about downloaded music? You know what I mean? Like, and, (laughs) and so, but there are principles that we can draw on from the book of Proverbs, from the concepts of Sabbath and rest that can help us in our understanding of what to do with technology. And the same thing is true, but I would even say to an even more central degree in the conversation of race and ethnicity. Because if I understand that God created humanity in, in his image, right? The Imago Dei we see in Genesis chapter one uh, and expounded on the rest of scripture, that that is an incredibly unifying picture and, and, and vision of our shared collective uh, origin mm-hmm. and our shared collective destiny. You know, in Revelation, we see in Revelation 7, 9, every tribe, tongue and nation worshiping before the throne. And that picture that John sees is one in which there's still ethnicity, there's language, there's culture, but distinctions. And yet there's still this unifying theme of worship. And the other part of that is when you go from Abraham in particular uh, on, you see God working his redemptive plan through a particular people group, uh, the people of Israel, the Jews, and that that uniqueness has its own perils that we see throughout the Old Testament. So in other words, the biblical story makes space and makes room for conversations about human conflict over what we would now know as race, but, you know, would be more in the biblical context, ethnicity or nationality. Um, So we see Miriam, right, being struck with leprosy when she (laughs) criticizes Moses for marrying a dark-skinned, you know, African woman. Uh, We see, um, you know, these different nuances of the story in in Esther, where Haman is enraged that Mordecai, who's a Jew, is uh, would not dare bow to him. And so therefore, it tries to exterminate all the Jews. Right. Mm-hmm. But even in the New Testament, this story really picks up steam and clarity when in the book of Acts, where all of a sudden, you know, the the the, the disciples are met with this 
contrast and you see God opening up the floodgates, right, with Peter and seeing a vision from heaven and don't call, you know, what I have cleaned dirty. And then Cornelius comes and he's supposed to sit at Cornelius's house to eat and then spirit falls on Cornelius and all these Gentiles. And it's like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? Then Paul and him going to the, you know, to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. And all this picks up in really, I think, uh, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, I think really gives us a p- dynamic picture of this story where there are people who are saying, wait a minute, these people have to become Jewish. They have to become, they have to follow the law. That was the religious part of it. But also they have to deny their culture and their ethnicity because there was a sense of um, superiority that the, that the Jews had begun to have, right? They would sing, say this prayer even, you know, every day, you know, thank God, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. Um, mm-hmm. And so in this council, you see this, this incredible conversation happen with, wait a minute, these are all good Jewish boys and girls who keep kosher and who, you know, circumcise uh, their babies in the eighth day and all these things. And they are Jews. And it's like, what do we do about the Gentiles? And what ends up happening in that passage, in that chapter, is when Paul steps up and Barnabas steps up and say, look, we are seeing God reveal himself to the Gentiles. When Peter steps up and tells his story, all of a sudden, and and, and N.T. Wright makes this clear, that this is not merely a religious conversation. This is also an ethnic and cultural Mm -hmm. conversation. And do the Gentiles have to become Jewish like mm-hmm. in order to follow Jesus and not just follow the law? And it, it, the, those things are intertwined. Um, and what they end up finding, you know, what they end up concluding is let's not make be a hindrance to them. Let's not be. And so at that point, you know, they say, look, just they gave them very minimum rules, you know, sexual purity. Don't, you know, eat meat with the blood in it. Go and follow Jesus. And that b- breaks open the floodgates even more to the point. And this is the last thing. And I'll be quiet. In Acts chapter 17. See, a lot of times we we, we chop up the scripture in these <laughs> chapters and verses without realizing they weren't originally in these chapters and verses. Right. So 17, when Paul goes before Mars Hill, and, and a lot of us like to quote that and frame that when he says, I see you're very religious and you even have a statue to the unknown God. And he begins to quote their poets. We somehow divorce that from 15 when they got the green light to say go and embrace the, 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 you know, preach the gospel and use the the Gentile cultures, the Greek cultures in order to do it. So now in Acts 17, Paul is literally quoting their poets mm-hmm. and referencing their points of reference in order to get the gospel known. And so the, 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 the central point to that that I take away from is that when you read the book of Acts, you know, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, when it says, you know, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Really, if you step back and look at it, this is a story about ethnic tensions Mm -hmm. and a story about conflict and how do we as a church wrestle with those things. And we get really helpful insights for today about how do we handle this conversation about race. So the first part of that is it's a gospel conversation. It's an important conversation for the church. The second part of that is God actually cares about it and has given us some insights. And it's and it's really important to the gospel, this aspect of what does it take for humans who would look different, who come from different backgrounds, who there's power dynamics involved. What does it take for them to actually become brothers and sisters in Christ? Man, the good news is we got a whole lot of of of, of, of research and, and, and scripture to give us clarity about how to make that happen. And as well as the insight that it's hard. 
just going to wind you up, man, and let you go. So let, let me, um, here's how I have worded, worded what you've said. Let, let me know if this is good language. Like I I've said, and, um, I can, it's, it's really easy to show from scripture. You've already cited many of the passages, but that, um, ethnic reconciliation is a first tier gospel issue. Um, that scares some people than certain yes. crowds, but it's, it's, let, let me, Romans one through five, it mm-hmm. is, it is an essential thread to Paul's argument in Romans one through five begin. And, and it comes to a head. I mean, it's there in chapter two, even in chapter one sets up two, condemns everybody chapter three, but then in three twenty eight, is God, the God of the Jews only, is he not also the, you know, and then the yeah. entire chapter four, the Abraham narrative is all of, all about, it's primarily about these ethnic tensions. And then we are all one in Adam, Jew, you, even you Jew are part of Adam, you know? Um, so the whole argument there in one of the most beloved, and then it comes up in 14 and 15 again, right? Um, but how about uh, Ephesians 2? Not the first, yes. first half's beautiful, vertical reconciliation. Yeah. Yes. Two eleven to twenty two is is wrapped up in that with horizontal reconciliation, and it says, exp- I mean, explicitly that part of the goal of the cross in two eleven to fifteen or whatever is to tear down bury eth- ethnic barriers. This isn't abstract unity; it's unity across e- ethnic lines. A couple more, and then I'll stop. But um, in Galatians two, when when uh, Peter confronts, when Paul confronts Peter for removing himself from the Gentiles. So he's now rebuilding that ethnic wall, their ethnic barriers. Paul says, you are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. So when people say, ah, this is, yeah, this is good to do, but it's not a gospel issue. Then I don't know how you, Paul says, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. And in Galatians 3, 8, he says um, that God preached the gospel to the Gentiles ahead of time to Abraham saying, in you, all the nations will be blessed. And the whole argument, he set up a whole argument there of Gentile inclusion. And he says, God preached the gospel to Abraham ahead of time. So even there in, in two, chapter 2 and 3, the, the very word gospel is wrapped up in this issue. I'm preaching to the choir to you, but I mean, just to, so, so how would you, so is that fine to word it that way, that ethnic reconciliation is an essential component to the gospel? I know that's kind of vague. Like, what does that mean? You know, but we can't say yeah, this is I, just I, some I, secondary it's, it's, thing. It's, it's, I think it's an essential implication and okay. application okay. of the gospel. Yeah. yeah. Implication and application. Right. And I, I just add that bit of nuance, you know, uh, because sometimes those of us in this work are accused of a type of um, legalism yeah. or you're taking, you're adding to salvation, you know, by God's grace, grace alone through faith. And so I'm just making it clear by when I say implication and application that this isn't a somehow you need to be a quote unquote social justice warrior in order to be saved. Okay. It's a an expression of the fact that when it, when Jesus when is, is asked what's the greatest commandment and he says love the Lord your God and the second is like it to love mm-hmm. your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. There is an inclusive an all inclusive package that somehow loving your neighbor is a reflection of loving God, right? And 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 so I. Yeah, implication and application helps us to see that it's the implication of the gospel is that it demonstrates itself in a type of love, in a type of reconciliation, in a type of justice seeking um, that 
does have enormous implications mm -hmm. for how we interact with each other. And the application is that therefore we go and do something about it. And it's, and it's, I mean, again, Ephesians two, it's, it's, it's part of the goal of the cross. One of the goals of the cross, if I could put it like that was Jesus's death was intended in part to tear down ethnic barriers. I mean, that's yeah. kind of exactly what Paul says. So we have whatever, yeah, like okay. Impl implication feels a little weak to me. I know what you're, <sighs> but but I but yeah, that critique. But that same critique. I mean, if yeah. I said is the definition of marriage a first tier gospel issue? Most people that the camp that you're, you know, yeah. that maybe you get critiqued on, they would say absolutely is justification by faith a first tier gospel issue? Yeah, yeah. Well, even even justification by faith, as N.T. Wright and many others have shown, has strong the background of that very concept sure, is sure. I, yeah let me know. let me clarify it what i what I, I think what i meant to say is an implication of justification and an application of justification okay but again this is where even my own background and being kind of shaped by evangelicalism sometimes i think that there is justification the gospel no it's an aspect of the gospel right. the gospel is bigger than that so in that sense you're right in saying it is accurate to say that this is a first tier gospel issue, period, end mm -hmm. of sentence. And then we just kind of have to work out, well, what I what I don't mean by that is how one experiences just being justified. That's that was, I think, the we're nuance. not justified by doing things toward ethnic reconciliation. But if if we are truly justified, this should be a very natural yeah, outflow of yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We get hung up, right? I mean, on the just Initial salvation, sanctification, and not one to smuggle one and the other. The other. So, I, yeah, I get that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, how are we doing with this? In, in, <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you feel like the last couple of years has brought, obviously, a lot of conversations to the fore, a lot of books being written, a lot of books being read. Um, are we, has it been, are we better now than we were two years ago? Or have we gone backwards? Or does it? Is it kind of a mixture of both? I think it's a mixture. Um, there's, and and well, let me start off by just launching the launching pad of that version of what we just said is the biblical story mm -hmm. or a key component of it, of like Ephesians 2, breaking down these barriers. Um, that's not a shared uh, perspective okay. to begin with. Um and that's part of the challenge is that um, oftentimes those who do who disagree that uh, this is a, a key component of what we should be talking about as a gospel issue will often add to that disagreement a accusation that those who are leaning into these issues are doing so being more shaped by a secular godless culture that then they are by a biblical story. And so hmm. I think that um, that's part of the challenge is that uh, even, you know, like that, you know, you talk about like in being married that you should fight fair, right? Like in part of fighting fair is that you, you don't make accusations, you just deal with what the person is actually saying and engaging with and, and go from there. And I don't think we've been fighting fair hmm. um, in and the body. Um, and so that creates a, a problem. But then beyond that, there's an aspect of the, uh, I would say, 
maybe theological imagination or uh, of what, how to think about these moments of conflict, whether they be George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, you know, a racial discrimination issue that comes up like mm-hmm. Brian Flores in the NFL or mm-hmm. something. And I think that there are um, how to even what our posture should be for those and even our interpretation of those type of uh, moments have uh, been widely divergent. But I don't I, I think part of the problem is that uh, there's been more of an attempt. And of course, you know, let's just be honest. We said we're going to keep it 100 in evangelical circles. We are more shaped by a certain skepticism mm-hmm. of the, the realities of or of, of race being a factor or systemic racism being a thing. And so in our cultural landscape, there's usual pushback in the very notion that this mm-hmm. is something that should be taken seriously mm-hmm. in our particular, you know, um, you know, kind of part of the Christendom. And so I think in that sense, those positions and postures have been hardened uh, in in very institutional ways. Um, I just co-wrote a a article, uh, a book review of Owen Strachan's, um, you know, uh, Christianity and, um, gosh, wokeness. Um, I've heard of it. I haven't haven't read it. Yeah. 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 In any case, um, and, you know, I think, you know, in that book, uh, there is a type of misrepresentation of, you know, uh, yeah, Christianity and wokeness, how the social justice justice movement is hijacking the gospel in the way to stop it. And in that, um, you know, I think that's an example, you know, when you start talking about people needing to be experienced church discipline for, you know, being quote unquote woke and using these titles and and very uh, inaccurately or, or, or kind of labeling people in broad ways, that these are the types of things that have been unhelpful to the call to uh, actually look to engage and, mm-hmm. and, and to dialogue and to, to, to identify what we're saying precisely and, and, and how to move forward precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are the types of challenges that we've had. But then on the flip side, we've seen greater strides made in other in other aspects of evangelicalism of actually having the conversation. I just participated in a webinar with Christianity Today and our Daily Bread Ministries mm. on Black History Month and, mm. you know, uh, seeing dialogues like that happen um, and resources, you know, move forward in that space. So I think it's a, 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 a tale of two churches in that way. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. No, I, 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 you have a better pulse on this than I do, but that, that I definitely resonate with that. Um, how how much of it do you think is due to kind of political al- allegiances that have kind of co-opted the church? L- let me I guess tease out that question. Like when when I it just seems like I mean this has always been there but I feel like it's just been galvanized the last couple of years especially since 2016 primarily I would say but where Christians have they have such tribal allegiance to a certain side of the political aisle and they're getting discipled by certain news outlets and those are getting more polarized. And I, I, it probably happened on, on both sides. Um, but I guess Christians that are, are nervous about the race, any kind of race conversation, because it seems like it's a secular left wing thing or whatever. Typically, obviously that's going to be fear among right wing, uh, Christians. And I just wonder if they, if they weren't ever on the news, (laughs) if they just kind of 
I don't know, re- read the Bible. Um, and, and we're all, we're all, we all have cultural things that, you know, are influencing us, but I just, I don't know. Like I'll, I'll tune in to like Stacy, you know, popular right wing, left wing outlets, whatever. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's where they're getting that from. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that was, I'm, I'm kind of just circling around the yeah. question here. But. I, I think that the polarization, the political polarization has, worked to amplify tensions, but I disagree that the, that ultimately, I do not think that ultimately that the issue of race in America is a partisan issue. Mm. I think it goes much, much deeper than that. Okay. Um, and in fact, there's a recent book, uh, you know, I interviewed, uh, Duquan on my podcast, um, and and he just wrote a co-wrote a book with Greg Thompson called Reparations. It's yeah. an incredible book um, that kind of deals with the issue of reparations or that, you know, should there be some type of financial restitution or some type of restitution to for, for, to black people in particular in light of, um, you know, 250 plus years of slavery as in America, et cetera. Right. But honestly, is persuasive and compelling of a case that they made uh, about reparations, that wasn't the biggest takeaway for me in the Mm -hmm. book. The biggest takeaway for me was their discussion and description of racism. Mm -hmm. And it was something that, because I think before we can even have the conversation about how to fix a problem, we have to know what the problem is that we're talking about. And oftentimes, um, it's well, I'll just read a, a, a quote from yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they say American racism is not simply a personal prejudice, a relational division, or a specific institutional injustice, but something much more profound. Specifically, racism is an entire culture, a comprehensive way of being and doing that is embedded in our structures of meaning, morality language and memory Hmm. and expressed in patterns of individual social and institutional behavior. So Hmm. there's a lot there, right? But what they start off by saying is, and this is definitely speaking to the evangelical space where it is, it's not just a matter of personal prejudice. It's not someone just saying the N word in a mean or nasty way or, 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 or whatnot, or even a relational division um, that may cause or but or even and this is what they were pushing back against the more progressive. That, so that's the conservative narrative. Mm-hmm. Then they push it back a, a little bit against the, 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 the progressive narrative or a specific institutional injustice. They say it's something much more profound than systemic injustice or systemic racism. They they speak of it as a culture, hmm. a cultural disorder in particular of a comprehensive way of being doing that is embedded in our structures. Look at this of meaning, morality, hmm language and memory. Hmm. So that's both individual and social and institutional. And when I read that, I thought to myself, wow, that is a very comprehensive and compelling way of thinking about race and racism in America. And it really rings true for me. And I, and and the, th- and the thing is that they they lean on is saying we're not the first ones to say this. That yeah. really, if you go back and see the discussions that were had at the time of you know 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that 50 years ago, these same ways of description of America 
of racism as a cultural disorder were used. And um, and I have another I'll, I'll pause there to get your take on that definition. <laughs> but I think that. but you see why I'm saying that that's not partisan. That goes deeper. Like if you go, you know, uh, you know, often like the more the radical Republicans, if you were to go back to the 1850s uh, with Lincoln was a party, it was a Republican. They were anti-slavery. You know, they were more, you know, you know uh, about abolition than they were about keeping the system in place. That was Democrats. You know, then yeah. if you, you know, go to the, but since like the 60s and JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson and the Civil Rights Act, they kind of flipped. And so, but either way, you know, it goes deeper than either, any of those political party affiliations. It's something much more profound. What do you think about um, that? Well, I, I don't have the pay grade to give a uh, educated opinion on that. I, I do have just thoughts and questions that come up. Here's one that I would love yeah, it's. I guess let me frame it as a question. Like, well, what what would if if how would you define a racist then? Because in that definition, I think I would be a racist because I'm I'm part of and one might even say benefited from that culture. And if that if that's true, if it's if the if kind of everything is racism, then how do we distinguish between that me and David Duke? Is David Duke a racist? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Am I a racist? Yes. Yeah. Well, that if everybody's yeah. a Nazi, then uh-huh. what do we do with Hitler? Um, and now the same problem right. with even like the term violence. You know, now people say, well, words are violence, and you know, yeah. a a a, a um, you know, you could look at somebody and that could be violence. It's like, what about people who are you know actually experienced the Rwandan genocide? Yeah. Like, well, they went through violence. Right. Well the teacher gave you a dirty look and that's violence and somebody had right. their family slaughtered by their neighbor. And that's violence. Like if it, right. I don't like, I, yeah. I need a different word then to distinguish me from yeah. David Duke. And, <laughs> yeah. That, that's great. That's a great point. And I think this is when we, and this is why a cultural disorder is a better way of thinking about racism than, than uh, some type of simple definition that one can use. Because I think that the, obsession about who's a racist and who isn't, you know, recently you may remember, you know, uh, uh, Rogan, uh, you know, Joe Rogan yeah. came out with yeah, a, yeah. there was video of him, uh, using the N word and referring to a black neighborhood as planet of the apes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he came out and was like, that was horrible, but that wasn't being racist. I w- that wasn't racist. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know what in his mind, like what crosses the threshold of racism beyond calling a black neighborhood Planet of the Apes. But the reality is, I think there's uh, that one of the ironic downsides to the moral authority of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. has been the absolute, it's almost like the worst thing that, you know, uh, you can be someone can be tarred or feathered with this label is racist. Mm-hmm. And so because it has this almost mystical, you know, power behind this name, then it's like nobody wants to be associated. But I actually when I think about it, I think about the question more about like I think the gender conversation helps me to think about this in a more nuanced way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I remember when the Me Too movement kind of got prominence in the Harvey Weinstein, you know, scenario came out and and it was to me very shocking thing to see all these like powerful men, 
you know, kind of be confronted with, you know, uh, with things that they did. And I remember t- talking to my wife and daughter and being like, man, this is shocking that this is happening, isn't it? And they were looking at me like, no. And I'm like, really? Why not? And they began to talk about their experiences uh-huh. walking, you know, to the car or walking to the subway and cat calls and, and the types of ways in which huh. just their very existence in a uh, male dominated sexist culture can they experience these things, microaggressions, mm-hmm. et cetera, on a regular basis. And I became aware of the fact that like, wow, mm-hmm. like, I don't know how to make of my obliviousness to that, yeah. but I do know that I had work to do and that, um, that this moment was helping me to be more aware of scenarios in which gender was playing a part than I was previously privy to. And I just, I would just offer this. I don't, think that our definition, like, I don't think it's primarily important to define and, and and refine what is a racist and what isn't. I think, I think the more important question is understanding what racism is mm-hmm. and, you know, working toward um, steadily, un- gradually helping myself to be aware of this cultural disorder that exists and how it is the air that I breathed, how it is the very, you know, perspectives that I, you know, that I've, you know, embraced at various levels and, um, and how I can move away from that and, and move closer to something that's more like what the Bible regards as seeing the human dignity of all people. And, and so I, that was what I offer. I think that, that, that the label thing is such a, you know, I think it's important to call something out and say, that's a racist act. And obviously, but I, I think what does it, the, how do you define that? And what does somebody have to do? I'm less in, interested in that mm. than I am helping us understand and see yeah. what it is that we're dealing with. Well, you, like you said, cultural disorder. I, I like that. I mean, I think I like it. It's like vague enough and yet comprehensive enough. Um, it's almost like I'd want to say like, a, well, and again, a, I'll say it one more time, speaking from ignorance here, just thinking out loud, trying to think think through this, but uh, a cultural disorder that has racial components woven throughout it or whatever. Um, Right. Because I I, I would hesitate. Let me let me let me help you out here. I'll give you another part just to kind of make this more nuanced, because it's not just a cultural disorder like like anything. But they will go on to say that it's racism is fundamental to American culture. Now they they don't say that it's the only thing fundamental to the culture, but that it is fundamental to understanding mm-hmm. and, and and interpreting American history. So I'll give you an example. Um, I have you heard of the uh, Cornerstone speech before? I don't think so. Um, Who? Okay, so Alexander Stevens okay. gave this speech. He was the vice president of the Confederacy. Um, so this is a a speech in eighteen sixty one. Uh, March 21st, 1861. And he is essentially rallying the troops and giving them their kind of moral authority and vision for why this is a war that they should be engaged in. Okay. And I just, I won't give you the whole thing because it's pretty long, but I would encourage people to read it. But this, when I read this, this blew me away. I'll just give you a, uh, so he talks about how providence, right? God, um, gave people the idea of the institution of American, you know, uh, liberties and freedoms as in the constitution. And he said that there was, it was based on a fundamental 
problem or in, in its assumption that all men were created equal, mm-hmm. right? So then he goes on to say this, our, our new government, the Confederacy, is founded upon the exact opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. And in fact, he would go on to say that those in the North, they still cling to these errors and with the zeal. And one of the most striking characteristics of insanity in many cases is forming correct conclusions from fancied or erroneous premises. So with the anti-slavery fanatics, their conclusions are right, but if their premises were, their conclusions are right if their premises were. They assume the Negro is equal and hence conclude that he is entitled to equal privileges and rights with the white man. If their premises were correct, their conclusions would be logical Mm. and just, but their premises were being wrong, their whole argument fails. Hmm. This is a fascinating speech. <laughs> He's saying it more clearly than I've ever said, heard it said before. Right? He's laying yeah. out the case to say that fundamental to this vision of the Confederacy is the quote unquote great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. Boom. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, so let me let me put my right wing hat on. I can only wear sure. it for a few minutes. It starts to get itchy. Um. Absolutely. 100%. No, no debate that there is profound racism in America's history. Um, I mean, that speech is probably could have been given by many, many other people around that time. Uh, you know, slavery is an, a moral atrocity. Um, uh, Jim Crow is a moral atrocity. That was then. This is now. Sure, there are individual racists. There's there's always going to be individual racists of any society. That's just that, you know, and we should address that where it comes up, where there is racism, um, ab- acts of racism, absolutely address it. But uh, to say that that kind that that kind style of racism is still just as pervasive today or that it's as pervasive of a problem now, I mean, that just isn't true. Again, I'm, I'm Still wearing the hat. Yeah, sure, <laughs> um, sure. you know okay. it's it's a federal yeah. effect. If you had something inscribed that was racist, it's a federal effect. Like it's illegal now. Um, right. uh, redlining. Right. We've, we've dealt with that, and yes, there are lingering effects of this, and we need to keep doing that. Like it doesn't just end overnight. Like there's lingering effects, and there's white people with inherited land that was a result of redlining and, and this stuff. And, and yeah, we should absolutely work towards rectifying all of that but we are in a very very different era now how do, how do you respond to that? yeah <laughs> yes yeah. so, did i summarize know, it well is that is that i i think that that is a uh fair summary some summary of the kind of pushback to mm-hmm. something and i guess i would just circle back and go to me the fascinating thing about this speech and why i quoted it at length is not look at a particular racist person and what this particular individual said, isn't that so terrible? It's to step into the mindset of the the vision of what was at stake mm-hmm. and why, and to say that fundamentally what he's saying, their 
he was seeing their cause is not just moral, holy. He yeah. would go on the, you know, and and this was not just some individual that they go, man, he's off his rocker. This is the vice president of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and this is very much echoing the vision of the perspective. And so it'd be one thing if so, if if someone said, you know what, this whole Confederacy, this whole idea of like keeping people in a race-based chattel slavery is wrong. So we should stop. But that's not how the Civil War ended. It ended because one side had military advantage and defeated another side militarily. And we know that this idea, the very ideals Mm -hmm. continued on because what happens at the end of Reconstruction, you know, the Union brings in troops into the South to maintain, uh, to overthrow the racial caste system that had existed um, up until slavery. And then that was upended by the um, the uh, abolition of slavery. And and so then the troops leave in 1877 because of a, a guy, William Taft, wanting to be president and signing, you know, shake, doing a handshake agreement. And as a result of that, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the rise of racial terrorism, the rise of lynching. Why are they doing that? Why was the what was the explanation given for uh, the segregation that mm-hmm. we see going all the way up to the 1960s, you know, written in law. It was based on the same thing that Stevens is talking about here, mm-hmm. a cultural disorder that sees this idea of, of of racial supremacy, right, or white supremacy as central to the identity of the history, mm-hmm. of the present, and of what is, you know, you look at Birth of a Birth of a Nation, that the movie that came out in like nineteen, you know, early nineteen hundreds, and they reimagine the Civil War, uh, the, what happens at the end of the Civil War as like basically black men portrayed by white men in blackface as basically raping women and uh, being lazy and 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 all these things. So so this is why it's important to see this as a cultural phenomenon and imagination. This goes deeper than just laws. And again, you go, okay, well, it would be another thing if Dr. King gives a speech and everybody just is so mesmerized that they go, you know what, we need to stop doing all of these things. But if you look at the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and <laughs> fair housing, it was met with opposition every step of the way. Yeah. That's just 50 years ago. And so um, when I see it as a, a cultural disorder, it helps me to recognize the fact that we're dealing with not just personal biases, mm-hmm. but we're also building with systems that were in place to keep certain things that way mm-hmm. and that have continued to still lean on those same narratives, those same mm-hmm. ideas and those same structures. And it doesn't take just somebody with a clan hood in the background to keep the system of criminal justice mm-hmm. maintaining and, and skewing toward a, a racial bend. It doesn't take somebody with malice to keep it in place. The system's already been built that way. It just takes somebody to maintain it. Right. No, that, no, that's super helpful. I, I mean, so would you say there's more than just a faint residue of that system? Cause again, I mean, I, I, I could take the most Trump excited person, you know, whatever in Idaho, I live in Idaho and they would still say segregation was an atrocity like that. All everything you're saying, right. they're like, yeah, yeah, that's 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 that was horrible. Um, we should never do that. Like, I'm not for that, yeah. you know. Um, so you know, they would say, yeah, we we've we've 
move beyond that. And sure, there might be a residue of this cultural disorder around race, but um, they might even say, again, put my right wing hat back, you know, now the opposite's true, you know, (laughs) where if I say something that could even be taken slightly racist on Twitter, I'd be banned, you know, from, you know, social media outlets or whatever, which, you know, isn't a minor thing when sometimes your businesses rely on that, whatever. Um, If I'm applying for a job and there's, you know, <laughs> a person of color applying, I feel like there's a better chance they'll get it than me. It's how people. Um, yeah. I do think it. that we have to take seriously the disorientation and, and those and the real among many disaffected people that um, somehow being white uh, is being considered to be evil. And mm-hmm. in this in these dialogues about race, uh, that there is a real sense of a um, hardship or dis- disadvantage or a seeking of 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 returning of of revenge uh, that is in play in these racial conversations. I think that um, that's that's a real perception that exists, and uh, and I think that there's a couple layers to it. Um, I go back to this cultural disorder conversation. Because, again, if you go back to um, the initial battles, like how did people like who were following the instructions of Bloody Sunday, for example, Mm -hmm. when uh, the protesters went across the bridge, you know, in Selma, Montgomery to go on a voting rights, you know, march. Right. And they were met with law enforcement and sick dogs and broken skulls and Mm -hmm. attacked violently and viciously in what is now known as Bloody Sunday. You know, I was listening recently to actually one of the folks that were on the the discussion of Black History Month with Christianity Today. His name is Reverend uh, Noel Hutchinson. He did an interview with one of the women who were, uh, she was a 17-year-old at the time of that march. Mm -hmm. And just happened to reference that they went back and kind of interviewed one of the key, some of the key law enforcement officers at that time today, because this is, you know, a lot of the folks still alive, you know, that were were there. And he said, I wouldn't do anything different. Like I was following Mm -hmm. the, 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 trying to obey the law and, and, and they were, you know, and and following my orders. And so that's what I did. I think that um, the, but how do you reconcile that with somebody? That's somebody's pawpaw right there. That's someone's grandfather. That's someone's, husband and 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 father like and so i think the reckoning of how to understand our past and our present is very difficult and what that means and what are the implications of that i think people hear something different than what it says so if i start from the premise that everything is fair and i i i got what i deserve from hard work and then someone puts in place like in the NFL, the the Rooney rule to that somehow minority a minority candidate has to be interviewed for uh, a, a coaching position or for an executive position. Then if I'm already told that the the world is fair and the you know NFL is fair and is based on merit, then I'm looking at that as preferential treatment, mm-hmm. right? And so that begins to feel like a disadvantage, in spite of the fact that there's only one black coach in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like as of the end of last year when uh, Brian Flores got fired and he puts out this racial discrimination lawsuit. And it sounds like to you as preferential treatment because you haven't 
embrace the reality that there's been something hmm. askew from the beginning. Yeah. And and I think there's oftentimes a, a tendency to mishear uh, criticism of the past as an attack on the entire on a, in, on every single white person as there. And that's not what the hmm. um, that's not what is meant or implied. But that is often what is heard. And I think we do have to be aware of that and, yeah. and try to help people, you know, hear more clearly what's being said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the time too. I know you got to go in a few minutes, and we're oh, just man, yeah, we're go, just getting go. started, dude. <laughs> uh, that's all good. Uh, I'll just if I have to reschedule my appointment, I'll do that because this is important. Um, gosh, where did, so. I, I'm st- I'm still because I, I, I can't I mean so I'm I'm going to speak freely now as myself I I I don't know I, I I can see both sides of it really like when people I don't know um, and it's it is hard as a as a white person I I hundred percent admittedly am have blinders on and and I don't have the experience and kind of like I, I went through the same thing with the gender thing with you like it was just I think last year a girl. Um, like a girl told me, like, was it a girl? Uh, somebody said, like, hey, you know, whenever I go, a girl said, whenever I go for a jog, it's, it's, there's anxiety. There's, you know, I think about it. Like, where am I going to go? Is it getting dark? Um, all this stuff in my, you know, and I've like, I never thought of, I'll go running at midnight if I wanted to. And I didn't even think about, like, you know, is, is somebody going to attack me? You know, I can, I can go, I can take my shirt off, go run down, whatever. And like, I don't even think about that. And women joggers, I know. So no, every time I leave the house and go on a jog, it's it's through my mind. Times that by a thousand. It's like, hey, how many daily routines have I not experienced that have just well it is are just embedded in how I can even begin to process what you're talking about. So um I don't know where I'm going with that. I just, I just want to yeah. like, I, 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 yeah. I will always kind of like with the, I mean, you know, I've spent years in the LGBTQ conversation and yeah. I always begin by saying that whatever I say, there's always going to be a, a padded distance between me and this conversation is no matter right. how many conversations I've had, no matter how yeah. many LGBT friends I've, you know, made, you know, made over the years, there, there will always be yeah. this, this distance, you know? Um, right. But doesn't it like, so I, I think, in both of those examples that you just gave, it gives great context that you have developed an awareness mm-hmm. of the fact that the stakes or the risks involved with you, that there's a story in those communities that runs deeper than what your experience is as mm-hmm. someone who doesn't, who's not threatened by the same realities that they're threatened by, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you never had to think about what would happen if I brought my you know, you know, someone I was interested in and want to go on a dance, if that might mean that I get kicked out the house or you didn't have to think about, well, you know, might I, you know, uh, be um, attacked if I go out for a run at midnight and my clothes is a bit, you know, tight. And I think that that's the type of perspective taking that is really endemic to the scripture. Actually, mm. it's beautifully pictured in terms of the gospel. Um, we see it in Christ in Philippians chapter two. You know, when Paul, you know, admonishes, you know, the people there um, have this same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Right. And, uh, be, you know, like do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Hmm. And then he says, and you know what you, it would be like that way? Jesus, who, even though he was God, did not think equality with God is something to be grasped, but emptied himself 
taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that humbling took him to the cross. Mm -hmm. And because of that, God exalted him. And I think that that is the same posture that we need to pursue these conversations of marginalization and, 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 and recognizing that one, like we see it in Acts chapter six, like with the, uh, the, uh, the widows, the, um, the Hellenistic widows who were being neglected by the daily distribution of food. There's a complaint that arises that the disciples who are Hebraic Jews, they're not, they're part of the majority culture in this, this discussion, this, this situation that a complaint arises from the you know, Hellenistic Jews, that their widows are being, you know, neglected. And so what does Paul do? He, and I mean, you know, the disciples, uh, Peter um, and the others, they gather, they have a meeting, they hear the grievances mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. marginalized or minority community, and then they make some changes to empower those uh, people from that community to actually be in positions of leadership um, in order to serve more effectively those communities. And, and the passage never explains, was it intentional? Was it an oversight? Mm -hmm. We don't know. We just know that there was a power dynamic and there were people being um, discriminated against um, based on their ethnicity and language or, you know, like mm -hmm. that was the determining factor. And that the disciples, even though they were part of the majority culture, they decided to do something about it and yeah. they empowered people and they listened to people and they said it pleased the whole congregation. And so that is the type of response that's available to us um, when we see that, well, maybe I don't get the full picture. Maybe this maybe it's possible that what feels to me like, quote unquote, reverse racism yeah. is actually a corrective that is meant to address something that I can't particularly see. Yeah. Um, you know, and so when you, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. That that you okay. the way you worded it there is exactly what I've been kind of processing. Um, because yeah, I mean, I yeah, I in the past I've been kind of bothered by that. You know, I I, I um I pursued academics. I wanted to be a you know I want to get get a PhD and teach into college and everything. And and you know the biggest joke was yeah, good luck getting a job as a white straight male. You know, at, at a university. You know, um and yeah, it was. I mean, I applied for. 37 jobs out of my PhD and, you know, went into major debt over it and, um, had published articles as a PhD. Like I did, I worked as hard as I could and I got like one, two interviews out of my, I got, I got a few interviews. One, I won't say which one, but there was one that said, yeah, we, everything on paper looks great, but you're not a woman. Like we do need to hire a female faculty member. And I was bummed. It was kind of like my top school I wanted to teach at, you know? Um, but like what you're saying is like, yes, but we have a huge over male representation on our faculty. We are trying to rectify kind of a male dominated field. We do think that simply being a woman doesn't qualify you to teach, but bringing a female perspective along with credentials and everything is something we value, you know? So I'm like, I could see that too. So I, I don't know. Like over the years I've, I've tried to see both both sides of it, and I, you know, I, I'm trying to hold intention too. This is, I guess, maybe going a different direction, well, similar direction, but like the this the systemic issues versus individual agency. Um, you know, most conservative white people might say, yeah, if you work hard, and when the cop pulls you over, just you know, don't <laughs> just do what he says. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. It's it's but white people still 
yeah, just, just obey the law, man. Just obey the law. Um, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I, when I mean, when people only emphasize systemic stuff, I feel like I don't. I don't want to overcorrect too far in that direction because I do think I think it's actually can be dehumanizing to not also emphasize the role of individual agency too. Um, I have another question, but I, I would love to get your thoughts on. My yeah, I, I think you, yeah, sure. You brought out a few things, um, and like where I say like a corrective. So when I go back to Act Six, right. Um, one of the things I, I kind of just point out to people that in order for the deacons, you know, uh, Stephen and Nicanor and others to have been selected, that meant some people got fired, right? Like some people <laughs> lost their job. Whoever was distributing the food, like he, they were like, hey, come, you know, bring your clipboard and your keys. Um, and uh, that's going to uh, be, you know, um, you know, we're, we're growing in a different direction. Uh, and so any case, um, I think the implication of that is that in order to rectify some things, um, it does take intentionality to, like you said, if, if there's women underrepresented in a certain field, then it makes sense to intentionally find qualified women. And again, this is the thing. Are they underrepresented because they're just not qualified or are they rep- underrepresented because somehow there's some structural cultural yeah, disorders yeah. that are causing them to be undiscovered mm-hmm. right and, and so what we're the case that is being made is no there's actually lots of qualified people who have the um the credentials if they were given the chance or they have the capability if they were given a chance but because of something a disorder in the culture that aspects of sexism aspects of racism mm-hmm. prevent that from being the case uh, this came up recently with uh, President Biden announcing that he was going to select a black woman to be a Supreme Court justice. And yeah. there were allegations that this is somehow, you know, unfair to, you know, to limit the court selections based on that way. And it's like only if you assume that there aren't actually <laughs> the reason why there has never been a black woman in the court is because there's never been a black woman qualified for the court. And only if you assume before Thurgood Marshall, there were never black people qualified to be on the court. Yeah. You know what I mean? And before Clarence Thomas and other than Clarence Thomas, there aren't any. So like, so I think, but if I, if I take the other perspective is that they're there, but there's just structural and cultural limitations or disorders that prevent them from being identified. Then I don't assume that someone's saying explicitly, I'm going to find that person or, yeah. or identify that person is coming from a place where I, that means I'm going to lower my standards right. in order to um, to to get some person in a position symbolically that doesn't belong there. Yeah. And I dealt with that all the time when I went to Penn, that this was at the height of the affirmative action debate. And people were saying that I, you know, they white students assumed that <laughs> black students were there because of a quote unquote affirmative action, which to them meant you don't really deserve to be here. You're only here because they wanted you to be here. And I think that's part of the cultural disorder of not understanding the zooming out and seeing, man, if you were to just look at the historical story of educational limitations of discrimination that was even just rampant and clear, then you would know Mm -hmm. that there are many people qualified to be here uh, that could be here, but they just, for various cultural reasons institutional yeah. and personal ever haven't been able to get there that that so that's that's the assumption when people critique like affirmative action is you're lowering the standard 
right. let people in based on their skin color. Yeah. And that's where they would say that, how is right. that not just reverse racism? What you're saying is we're not, so you would say if there was a, and I don't know enough about it to know if that's what happens or if that's a myth. Um, would you, so would you say any kind of affirmative action that maybe not even use that label, any, any kind of standard that we lower the standard because you assume right. people of color can't meet that standard, which really is pretty patronizing. That's right. 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 <laughs> that that, that but, isn't but again, good. That, that, that we should not, that's not the way to go about it, but rather than open up your eyes to see that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, if I was, if I was, I got cancer and I needed surgery and I am like, yeah, I don't want somebody that's not qualified just to meet some quote. Like, nah, yeah. give me the person that's good. Like, give me, give me the, the whitest, whitest guy who. Ex- <laughs> if that if that's who it was. But the assumption that oftentimes people have, there was a great skit where uh, <laughs> it was a black person that was like, I want a white surgeon <laughs> because he, he actually believes like, look, I don't want somebody that's just. But the, the, I think the, the, the idea that a lot of times the internal internalized bias that people don't realize. And it's funny thing is I worked at the admissions office at Penn. So I knew that we had to earmark legacy. We had to earmark if somebody was from Iowa because they wanted um, all 50 states represented. So it was easier to get into the school if you were from Iowa than or Idaho, where you're from, if you were from Pennsylvania, where like 30 percent of the applicants came from. Um, But legacy meant that your parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles went there. And that was something that was taken into account. If you were an athlete, if you you know, there were all these types of things that were um, valued out of a sense of wanting a certain kind of uh, d- diversity. But at the same time, the nobody wants people to just go to a school and fail out. And so there was also, uh, you know, a real understanding of their academic ability to survive. That's just cruel to everyone involved. And what I saw time and time again, the people that were around, when I got there, I remember thinking, most of the kids that went to my school in the inner city of Philadelphia could have made it here if they were just given, you know, the right opportunities and, and you know, and whatnot. It, it just wasn't as like uh, just one note and overly simplified as it seemed. And so, you know, I think that, again, it's hard to argue for rectifying a problem if people don't see the problem that needs to be rectified. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's where. All I mean again, and one of one of the major out you you asked this question, and 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 then this has been a major conversation. Like, okay, I can agree with obviously slavery there was institutional racism, <laughs> or I can agree that segregation was institutional racism in the '60s and '70s. But didn't that get worked out? And like, yeah. what does that even mean for right now? And I think again, that's where the the idea of racism as a cultural disorder is helpful because it's not just institutional. It's not, but it's also personal prejudice. It's also relational, right? Mm-hmm. It's also just the, you know, and so the imagination, the stories that we tell. Um, I remember uh, when you look at, so for example, again, going to football, I guess, because we just, you know, it's why it's the Super Bowl. Um, if you look at the story of Warren Moon, Warren Moon was like the greatest quarterback in co- college football. He couldn't get drafted as a quarterback because the the cultural idea was that black men were not, cerebral smart enough to be quarterbacks. They couldn't read the offenses. They couldn't do the things. And so he ended up playing in Canada, winning like five, six championships in Canada before someone got desperate enough to give this, you know, guy a chance. And then he became, you know, he played in the NFL and became a Hall of Fame quarterback there. 
I am old enough to remember. Now, again, I, you know, I grew up watching football in the 90s where the running assumption was that uh, uh, I don't know. Black you know, men are, you know, can still quarterback right now. Again, wow. it wasn't a legal rule, but it mm. became a big deal when, you know, being from Philly, Donovan McNabb became the quarterback. Randall Cunningham became a quarterback, Michael Vick, because that was an assumption that was built in to the system. And so those stories continued even beyond when you saw this person or that person. Um, and I and I think that those are indications. So the last thing I would say is, is when in doubt, look at the stats, like look at, you know, talk to the people in those categories. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to talk to, you know, a black woman and say, hey, is, is there discrimination in STEM and science, technology, engineering, you know, mathematics? Go ask them and they hear their stories. They'll tell you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Look it up. Read on the, you know, the, the both from this, again, housing discrimination. There just was a, a report I, I mentioned in our last conversation when, with Samuel that there was a whole expose done in Long Island, New York that um, discovered rampant housing discrimination, like not 20 years ago, Mm. not 50 years ago, but like five years ago. Mm. And so um, there is a disorder in our country that definitely we need to address. The Bible, the scriptures, the gospel gives us the insights. Um, And even when it comes to something like restitution, you know, I'm working on a uh, docuseries on Juneteenth. Mm. And um, one of the things that's so fascinating is that you know what emancipated slaves like one of the names they gave to juneteenth was jubilee day why Uh did they call it jubilee day because they looked back in leviticus and saw the story of jubilee the story of how god had created within the structure the both the assumption that you know what y'all gonna abuse each other y'all gonna like take advantage of each other when somebody has a short fall in crops or some type of tragedy that causes them to have to sell you know their land to this other person you know and so because of that i'm going to put in the law a system where every 50th year Every debts are covered and 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 you return back to your ancestral lands and that there's a sense of a reconciliation of society that um, means that slaves, you know, would be free and that the those who were emancipated tapped into that insight and said, that's what's happening here. The same God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt in bondage and said, I heard their cries. The same God who saw the captives in Babylon and in Persia and raised up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Cyrus and other leaders to bring people back is the same God that is doing this today in our behalf because he cares about justice. And I think when we start to see those threads, we recognize that, man, we actually have the greatest insights about how to yeah. move this thing forward and and not shrink back. That that jubilee's trippy, man. I mean, that I've read scholars talk about that saying this is just one of the most countercultural economic things that we we see oh in any gosh. I mean, think about what, yeah. what if somebody worked hard and they built a farm and then they bought another farm right. and then they bought another right. farm and the, all of a sudden this guy kind of running away with the land and every 50 years like and he yeah. could have been he just worked really hard and he was a shrewd businessman and what if he was really honest? he yeah. did everything right but it right. still goes back to the original so that there are systems of keeping things not uniform but roughly speaking equal but, uh, we saw we see the same thing in um, Nehemiah if you look at mm-hmm. uh, Nehemiah after they come back from exile so <laughs> they have essentially come back from being enslaved by per- Babylon and um, in Persia. And now 
they're in their own lands and they're enslaving each other. And and, and Nehemiah just goes off on them mm-hmm. and says, what are y'all doing? We just yeah. got finished buying people back. And now I, you're putting them in bondage again. And the thing, the reality is that's the human condition, right? Yeah. Like, and so when I recognize that I am part of my brokenness and fallenness is the tendency to exploit other people. And depending on the cultural context, that is, I might be exploiting you because of your language and because of your past. This is why nations is so important to see as ethnicity. Race just became a uber meta way globally of organizing people in the same ways that people did, you know, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, When you look at Scythian or barbarian, when Paul talks about those terms, like barbarian was a negative term, a ethnic slur Mm. that Romans used to talk about the peoples that they uh, conquered because they sounded like barbar to them. So barbarian is Mm. like saying you sound like you're a babbler, like you don't really speak English because you're not, you know, the elite Romans that speak Latin like us. And so, Mm. you know, that's the so I guess when I so I'm not. I'm saying we should embrace the, the fact of our fallenness and whether it's gender, whether it's our mistreatment of you know sexual minorities, whether it's our mistreatment of ethnic or racial minorities, mm-hmm. that we need to recognize that this is part of the human condition. And instead of shrinking back or trying to defend ourselves, look into the power of God who said that in Philippians chapter two, have this mind in you that was also in Christ mm-hmm. Jesus, who sought the benefits of others over themselves. And when we do that, you know, what we'll find is that we've gained more than we've ever lost. Rasul, I want you to keep going, but we got to put a yeah. bow on this thing. Um, can you, why, why, why don't you just end, end us by just giving a word of challenge or encouragement or one yeah. of each to our audience who's listening saying, man, yes, I, I'm, I'm convinced that this is, this is something that the church Christians need to keep thinking through and pressing into what can, what do we walk away with this? How, what do we do? Yeah, um, I would say uh, keep like this is a gospel issue because the Bible <laughs> reveals this thread throughout um, the Gospels, throughout the Bible in general. Um, keep, um, you know, man, I went through a whole series uh, study on Psalms and it was just amazing to me to see how much justice and those themes of justice, yeah. can, you know, yeah. just jump out in the Psalms. And so. I think it's there. Acknowledge the fact that we have to we have a cultural disorder that we've been raised in um, that is important for us to deconstruct, dissect and to identify in that. um, But when we do that, we are on the side of God and living things out in that way. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And um, so I would say keep contending for the faith. Um, if you're on a journey where you're still like, uh, I don't really necessarily believe these things are true or accurate. I would just say diversify your sources of who you listen to, yeah. um, and, and lean on, um, that book reparations that I mentioned is a really helpful book, um, by Duquan and, and Greg, uh, Thompson. Um, there's a book, uh, I mean, um, coming out called faithful anti-racism, uh, by uh, Dr. Christina Edmondson. And Chad Brenner, that's uh, going to be an incredible, I think, Resource of the Body of Christ comes out, I believe, next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, definitely, you know, check out essays or articles or podcasts. The podcast that I do, Where You're From, is all about having these conversations and, and, and leaning into. Uh, Where you're from? Yeah. Where you're from? <laughs> yes. Where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. It's, and it's an origin story podcast so that we don't 
we want to start with us getting to know each other's stories so that we can have that as a, a framework for understanding why people leaned mm-hmm. into the conversations that they have. And so, um, yeah, definitely check that, those things out. Thanks, Rasul, man. That's super helpful. Um, yeah, let's all, I'll have you back on maybe in a two or three months or something like that. If you, if you can give up another hour. Yeah, man, I love it because, uh, like I said, I got this Juneteenth docuseries oh. that I'm working on that'll be out. And I think it's a great resource and I look forward to sharing it with folks. Let's do it yeah. right around Juneteenth. We'll, we'll pre-record it. So it releases around yep. then. That'd be perfect. All right. Sounds awesome. good. All right. Take care, bro. Yeah, take care.